Hello, everybody, and Happy New Year. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. Hope you are well and hope you're staying healthy. Um, we have had in our household an uh, unfortunate uh, case of COVID and dealing with it. Um, everybody is healthy and getting better, but uh, it's been a very interesting time. And so I wish all of you and your loved ones and uh, everyone that you care about uh, health and safety as we continue to battle and go through uh, this really, really unfortunate virus that continues to affect us almost uh, two years later. Today, I am so excited to share with you my conversation with a dear friend, Abigail Hing Wen, on this episode 135. And Abigail is uh, known mostly for her first book uh, that came out last year called Love Boat Taipei, or actually came out two years ago, it seems like last year, in 2020, and has returned with a second sequel called Love Boat Reunion, which came out today. And so uh, support your Asian American authors. Go check her out. Go uh, buy the book. Um, listen to the book. Uh, check out the book from the library. Buy a book for a friend. Um, really, really great story. And so I'm super excited to share this conversation that I had uh, with Abigail last year about her journey into writing, her career, um, and what this all means in terms of making sure that our kids and our uh, future generations have Asian and Asian American stories to read about. So. Uh, thanks again for tuning in to Dear Asian Americans. If you're joining us here for the first time, thank you. If you've been with us uh, for 135 episodes and more, thank you. Uh, I am your host, Jerry Wan, and really glad you're here. Uh, without further ado, love to share now with you my conversation with Abigail Hing Wen. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. Well, it's not the new year yet, but by the time you listen to this, it will be. So happy new year again. And I think this is going to be January 25th. So happy birthday to my dad. He doesn't listen, but happy birthday to him anyway. <laughs> really excited for our guest today. Not only because she's a badass in her own right, being a New York Times bestselling author, and her second book, her the sequel or the follow-up to her uh, first book, comes out today. But just her voice, her being able to transform her career, the amount of friends she has, because every when her first book came out, like half of my newsfeed was about for her first book and all the relatability that I think it brought to uh, particularly my Taiwanese American friends. I'm going to spend a little bit of time today sharing my conversation with Abigail Hing Wen about her early career, going to uh, some pretty cool schools and being a lawyer at first, and now how she writes, in addition to all the amazing things she does, young adult novels. Love Boat Taipei was the first book that came out, and her second book, Love Boat Reunion, comes out today. And so get both. Preferably not on Amazon, but if you have to, that works too. But anyway, excited to share this conversation. So Abigail, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing so well, Jerry. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to see you again. One of the first questions that I, I was extremely curious about is when we think about Asian Americans and maybe even Taiwanese Americans in particular, West Virginia doesn't ring a bell, but that's where you were born. That's um, right. <laughs> so let, let's start with your family's history of how you ended up there and tell us a little bit about your family's journey to America? Yeah, well, thanks for the question. So um, my family is a bit unusual. My my parents both emigrated from the Philippines and Indonesia. So we've been, um, and, their, and their parents before them immigrated from China. So we've been immigrants for multiple generations. Um, my dad's family came from Shandong province. My grandfather at the age of 18 left the country in search of a better life, left behind wife and new baby 
and his parents and could not get back in because the war broke out and he was stuck in uh, Singapore and then later Indonesia for 10 years before they were reunited again. So uh, Indonesia was a tough place as well. And so my, you know, eventually my father was born there and like his own father before him was sent to America um, just with his, his older sister to reunite with actually a, the oldest child um, and came in the seventies, went to grad school, um, actually went to high school at, in Michigan as well. And um, actually never saw his mother again. His mother passed away when I was seven. And I remember my father crying because that was, you know, that's how it was back then. They, they didn't, they couldn't afford the ticket home. Um, and there were also restrictions around the naturalization process where my father couldn't leave the country if he was trying, because he was trying to get a citizenship. And then my mother actually had a kind of a different experience. Her family, her father had gone from Fujian province to the Philippines and had, you know, taken his college fund, built a company from nothing there, and eventually came, you know, one of the, the wealthy entrepreneurs and founded the Manila Metro Hospital. So my mom grew up in a, you know, wealthier family. Um, and when her parents passed away when she was 17, she fled um, to the United States um, to try to just make a life of her own. And, you know, I think as I've gotten older, I've recognize like what strength that must have taken to come all by herself. So my parents ended up meeting at Michigan. My dad was at the University of Michigan and my mom was at um, Eastern Michigan. And they, I think I, they, my dad tells me he recognized that she was Southeast Asian Chinese. <laughs> so that was, that's what did it for him. That and the pink sweater apparently. Um, so that they, um, my dad was working as a chemical engineer at then Ohio, it was eventually acquired by BP Chemicals. And so that that role took them to West Virginia for two years where I was born. And then we eventually went to Ohio where my brother and sister were born. And um, from there, I went to Cleveland, Ohio, and I grew up in the Solon uh, suburbs of Cleveland. Very cool. Very familiar with Ann Arbor and Ipsy. And um, they're actually right next door to each other. The better Chinese food is actually in Ypsilanti, closer to Eastern oh, Michigan. Really? Yeah. We drove um, six hours from Ohio to Toronto to get Chinese food when I was growing up <laughs> on a regular basis. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Different different worlds, right? And I think um, that's actually <laughs> really, really, I mean, thank you for sharing your story because I think when you talk about, and when we talk about the things that we uh, experience now as Asian Americans, as sort of that middle generation, thinking about the world we want to raise for our kids and building on the sacrifices of our parents it's really, really hard. I think almost impossible for us to physically imagine the things that they went through, to imagine what emotional and mental decisions they had to make. So I know when we talk about, you know, I mean, you write, you wrote a book like about an experience that was so important for so many. That wasn't even within the realm of dreams for our parents and certainly not our grandparents' generation because their sole job was to simply survive. And to do it in a country where the language was foreign, where there was, you know, rampant racism, I mean, still today, but more so then, that was acceptable and unchecked. And, and to do it in a system where we all turned out okay because they somehow figured out ways to educate us and so that make sure that we would have different opportunities. I, I know it's a very common theme in our show, but just, you know, acknowledging that they did everything in their power. And I think if I certainly speak for myself, Abigail, that if I had to do what my dad did, like, no way, like the results are not where it is today <laughs> because it's, it's hard. Cause I, I think we were so privileged and we don't even realize it. Our, our ability to endure and to persevere and 
It's, it's, no, you know, we have an inheritance of resilience from what our parents yeah. have gone through. And I think I actually saw that during COVID. COVID was extremely hard on the entire world. But I think I, I felt like we came to it with that resilience of survival. Like our parents have yeah. survived worse. Tell us about the earlier years. Um, you went to law school initially. What did you, and, and you come from a background of entrepreneurs and um, engineers and sort of education that's still being important. What did you want to be? What were you encouraged to be? What did you want to do? Obviously, I just said you went to law school, but is that where you actually wanted to go? So my parents actually were a little unusual again. I think because they had been immigrants and you know in previous generation, um, they were activists in their local community. So they were parts of political organizations, um, and they encouraged my brother and sister and I to to think about political issues, public policy questions. And you know, I, there's a story I share where my parents would go see the principal in my high school, not on behalf of my brother and sister and I, but actually on behalf of other immigrant kids in our communities whose parents couldn't speak English at all. And they would actually be there to help translate between the cultures. And so that was a good, I think, an example for me of just that public service mindset. Um, so when I went to Harvard as an undergrad, I actually ended up studying government and then did two years on Capitol Hill when I graduated and, and then law school, two years of law school. So I think what I've discovered is I've had the same um, kind of global mindset that public service bent, that desire to impact culture and laws in the, in the world. Um, but I just was trying to find the right vehicle to do it. And I considered government for a while. I actually considered the private sector. And when I would visit factories in um, the developing world, I would, you know, I was like, government is never going to touch these places. It's going to be businesses that touch it first and, and even finance. Um, so I did a little work with microfinance as well. Um, and, and so that was kind of my career for a while. I, I went, you know, I came out to California to work. Um, it was really following my husband who was working in tech. And I also took a job in tech and venture capital. And I was in that career until very recently. But at the same time, I began to write. And I didn't know at the time when I began writing about 12 years ago that I was a creative person. It wasn't something that I had considered as a viable career option. Um, I think I did mention once to my mom when I was six that I wanted to be a painter. And it was like, no way. <laughs> And I, I would be a terrible painter, actually. I, I have no sense of, of, I had no ability to draw. Um, but I did decide about 12 years ago when I was thinking about continuing the legal journey into the academy um, that I just couldn't bring myself to write that law article that I needed to do. And so I started writing this novel, this fantasy novel. It was a high fantasy derivative of Tolkien derivatives um, with a boy and a sword and all that. Um, but it just kind of came pouring out of me. And I realized then like, wow, I had no idea that I was so, that I had this, these stories in me. Um, so from there, it just kind of grew and it was not an easy path for sure. I had no idea that I was an imposter. I'd never, I didn't really see any models ahead of me um, of people writing um, with Asian American girl characters, right? So a lot of my early books, my early stories, I kind of slipped in my Asian American characters as side characters. And um, over time, when I went to an MFA program at Vermont College of Fine Arts, I they encouraged me that you really should write those stories that are, are true to you and your experience. And so I became more courageous over time. And, and also I think times just shifted. And um, I finally ended up with Lobo Taipei. I say I went off the deep end because it actually has 30 Asian American characters um, and they're all different. And I, I really wanted to reflect the diversity within our community through this book. So I'm very grateful for the love that it's received and for the opportunities that it's had now to just open many doors for people. Oh, I, I think it's amazing. You breeze through like decades. So I'm, I'm going to, I want to go back and ask you about some, some experiences that you've had. 
I think you guys are friends, but you actually overlap at both schools and years with a former guest of ours, uh, Mishasha Suzuki Graham, who, you know, one, one of the things that she shared was sort of the impact that being in New York City on 9-11 had just sort of being there. And what was that? How did you experience that? For, for context, I went to high school in New York City, but we left in 2000. And so I was in L.A. when all this happened, obviously, fundamentally shapes even just the way that we see ourselves as American in both positive and, and potentially not so positive ways in the way that our, our friends were beginning to be treated. Did that have any impact on the way that you wanted to continue your work in government and law or in storytelling? Mm, that's a great question. And it absolutely impacted me. I, I think it, it shaped our whole generation. But I was in Manhattan on that day. And, you know, that experience, along with I have some very close people um, in my family who have autoimmune diseases. And then I had a friend who died in a rock climbing accident, Jeff Gu, um, when he was 24. Those experiences really shaped me as a young person. I, I think it's always been impressed on my life is really short and we don't have time to, to waste doing things that aren't important and that we don't care about. So for sure. Your initial career took you to some amazing firms that many people aspire to work at that are household names. You eventually landed in an in-house role at a large tech company out here in California. Through all that, what were some ways that you kept the storytelling and the creative side alive and wanted to, because I don't think, you know, people don't go one day from being a lawyer to a technologist to an author. Um, <laughs> we, we all tweak or at least we, we dream. You know, another friend and, and guest of ours, Helena Curie is also an attorney by day and she's a children's book author by night. And, you know, like it's, you do both. And because it's not one or the other, and it's not sequential, rather. Tell us about some of the ways that you kept, maybe for those who are stuck in jobs that they may not love, but want to have this creative pursuit and look to you as a role model, or as evidence that it is feasible. Because you, you were a lawyer for a long time. Um, how did you keep the writing alive? And how did you keep your creative pursuits alive then? Yeah, so I'm, I, I say I made two difficult choices. One was I, I alluded to Instead of going into the academy, the legal academy, um, instead of writing that law article, I wrote the novel and I stayed at a law firm. Um, and then when I moved to California with my my husband and my older child, um, I was pregnant. So I gave birth to my second one and I ended up just taking three years off and used that time to write my second novel and raise my kid and spend time with, with my family. Um, and at that time, I wasn't sure if I was going to go back to law or not. And I remember feeling very insecure about it. I would go to, I remember going to a party of lawyers and mentioning, I, for some reason I connected with another person who was also secretly writing a young adult novel. And we started talking about that. And I think we got some eye rolls from the other very serious lawyers at the party. And so, you know, things like that, I think I was a little, a little embarrassed. Like, oh, is this, am I a serious lawyer? If I'm also writing, you know, these books. Um, but uh, I did decide to go back to law because I felt like I wasn't going to be able to support my family. Um, on writing at the time, if I, you know, if I needed to, and I wanted to complete my training. So I went to a firm and then I very quickly was recruited to um, work in-house in a great job in venture capital. And that, you know, that's the bread and butter of Silicon Valley. So, and those jobs for lawyers, especially are pretty hard to come by. So I, I went ahead and I did that, but that was also, I would say my biggest second career decision because I, I took myself off the, the law partner track, right? And the law partner track is very glamorous in some ways, especially when you're inside it. Um, there's a lot of encouragement to stay on that path because, you know, you have the boards of companies and in the conference rooms and like you're doing the best deals, the best deals get farmed out because you need 
that extra those extra resources, right? So, um, but at the same time, by going in house to the BC um, arm of the company, I was able to see the new technologies that were coming through, which I loved. And the startup world I love because it's so risk-taking, it's so creative, it's so entrepreneurial, and that was a really good fit for me. And during that time with this job that was less you know, stressful than the corporate job, I was able to write on the side. I did. I, that's when I did the MFA program. It was 25 hours a week. And then all my vacation time was on campus. It was 10 days in the winter, 10 days in the summer. And that really, I think, helped to elevate my writing. I think the other key was having good critique partners that really encouraged me. And so there were definitely a lot of bumps. Love Boat Taipei is actually my fifth novel, my first to be published, but it took me many, many books before I could break through this, the gates. And my critique partners were the ones who really kept me going. There's a part of the story, I think, if people, if listeners are, are piecing it together, you did all this as a parent. If you are listening and you are a parent, uh, the last two years has been extremely challenging. Juggling is probably... Uh, an understatement of, of how we try to do everything at the same time. What, what are some lessons that you learned in terms of obviously being a parent, being a spouse, having a day job, but also being able to invest by both spending time working on your craft, but also doing the school thing into pursuing something that in the short term wasn't going to provide tangible rewards to financially or otherwise. How, how did you make that decision? And then what did you learn from that? I think it was incremental. Like I, I took small steps that were risky over time. And then I would get positive confirmation along the way. So with my first novel, I sent it out in the world, got rejected, but there was one agent who said, oh, you know, it's a great first chapter. Love to see your next book. So that kind of kept me going with the next one. Um, the next one I signed with an agent came close at a major publishing house, but couldn't get through marketing. And so that, I think at that point, I decided to do my MFA program where I just got incredible mentorship from incredible faculty and my um, my next novel, I signed with a major agency in Hollywood. And that one, again, couldn't get through the gates at marketing, but came very close at a house. So I think just those little points of confirmation that I was on track um, kept me going. And again, with Love Boat Taipei, um, I actually got rejected at a draft um, 26. And that's when I was like, maybe it's time to throw in the towel. I just can't Am I wasting my time? At the same time, I was struggling to get promoted at work, which is a whole other story in itself. Um, so I was wondering, did I spread myself too thin? And am I leaving myself with nothing? But that's when my critique partners came around me and they said, no, your stuff is really good. There's some reason why you're not getting through the gates. Um, and there were, you know, there were a bunch of factors. And so they gave me good advice on how to fix the manuscript. I scrapped the book. I rewrote it from the ground up. Um, then it sold in an auction. So... Um, <laughs> the rest is history, I guess. Your book came out, Love What Taipei came out in, in January of 2020. Obviously, a little before we went through everything that we're still going through now, it'll have been a little over two years when this episode airs. After everything that we've been through, after a lot of the other projects that we've seen from a movie and, and TV sense, I fundamentally believe that the world is more ready, at least America is more ready to see Asian characters on TV and in film and to read about Asian characters and even listen to Asian American stories as, as they do here on our show. But you were before sort of this, as, as ugly as it, the, the situation has been, it's, it's been a pivotal moment for our amplification of our stories. Was, was there a point that you wanted to, needed to, felt that it was your calling? As you said, your initial stories had people who looked like me and you as side characters, even in stories that you authored. 
but this entire book, this entire story, this entire ecosystem is us. Tell us about that decision and when did you feel like, okay, this is what I want to put my name on? I would say that the first time it really hit home that this book was going to matter to people was my um, one of the, the people on my marketing team. It was an Asian American girl. And she said to me that she'd read my book three times and she'd never felt so seen before. And I, I cried then. I didn't know how much it would resonate with someone. And she told me then I will do everything I can to make this, to get this book out there and get the word out. And she did. And, you know, since then I've had so many of those conversations with readers who've They've, they sent me messages about just different aspects of the book that they they resonate with. Either they're also struggling with their relationship with their parents' expectations and trying to pursue their dreams in the arts and dancing or in music or, or other things, or the journey of identity, or even just feeling like they are reading about someone who's similar to them. And that's been, that's meant all the world to me. So I think that has opened up a new world. For me altogether. And, and I, you know, exactly what you say, it does feel like my calling. Um, I have so many more stories to tell and that I'm, I'm working on in, in a variety of forms. And I'm really excited to, to be able to share those with the world. People look to you, particularly from the novel side of things. Obviously, there's a, a variety of categories of books, but memoirs have to be written about ourselves. Young adults, specifically novels, fiction type stories are written about characters that many people can relate to. What were some of the challenges that you maybe faced, maybe you didn't, um, would love to hear sort of trying to, and, and you eventually said your book went to auction, which is an amazing thing that pe more people wanted it and people fought for it. But we also know that publishing in America, you know, we don't see a lot of books with main characters or even entire cast of characters that look like me and you. What was that experience like? And do you feel that it's obviously, since you're you, it's easier now to get other ones, but do, do you think that it is easier even in the last few years for other people to to write Asian American stories? So for sure, I have seen since Love Boat Taipei come out, came out, I've seen a lot more Asian American novels on the shelves, which I'm so thrilled about. Um, my critique partners um, have been also writing for years. So um, Stacey Lee writes historical Asian American stories where she writes about real historical events and sets um, an Asian American girl in, in that world. Uh, Kelly Lloyd Gilbert is another, um, I.W. Gregorio, Eileen Long um, is also writing. And I, you know, I'm just grateful for that, that community, but it has, you know, it, we're not fully there yet. I think the publishing world has shifted a lot. And so one of the stories I've told um, 15 years ago, there was an Asian American writer who was asked to change her Chinese American boy character to a white character before they would publish it. And that, you know, that was one of the reasons why I, for many years, didn't think I was allowed to write an Asian American main character. But clearly, you know, we've gone from that moment to where we are today. And it's it's really standing on the shoulder of so many other pioneers that have come before me even. Um, so I am grateful to the extent that my book has has helped to prove out that, yes, there is actually commercial demand for diverse stories like this one. But there continue to be these little um, ways, these quarter cases where we're still square pegs and round holes. So one example, you know, you mentioned purchasing the book on Am not not purchasing the book on Amazon. So um, with the New York Times list, independent bookstore purchases are weighed more than an Amazon purchase. But most Asian Americans actually buy online. And so that's an example of another reason why it would be harder for an Asian American book to hit the New York Times list. Um, and you know, there's dozens of little corner cases like that where the big kind of the macro um, process doesn't fit the micro community. If that makes sense. I mean, even more specifically, the New York Times bestseller list draws from independent bookstores in specific neighborhoods where it's not so diverse. 
historically, I, I think you're right. It, it does present even more challenges in, in a digital sense uh, or in, in, in a present day sense. But you still did it, which I think is the relatability of the story goes far beyond people who live in specific areas and things like that. I, I mentioned earlier, your book came out in January. You know, the world was starting to change a little bit then. I went to, I think it was one of the very last public events I ever went to before COVID happened. Your, your, one of your book launch parties out here in Los Angeles. That's so much fun. It was. Um, and, and shout out to uh, Brian. Brian who, and Stephanie. Who apparently yeah. is best friends with every single person um, <laughs> ever in our community. Um, go watch Snakehead. Actually came out in real life this last weekend. Yep. So thrilled for them. Go watch it anyway. <laughs> Still. How, tell us about sort of the the marketing of the book. I know a lot of author friends who released, who, you know, who had planned releases in 2020 and 2021 talk about, man, no book tours, no in-person things. Obviously, we can't, we couldn't, we shouldn't have to keep everybody else safe. But as, as a first time published author coming out when the world was okay to have in-person things and then quickly being shut down, what, what did you learn? And, and what are some of the, you know, reactions that you got? And were there, was there a silver lining to it all being able to use digital and virtual channels primarily to promote your book. Right. So I, I, I was like many authors, I was hit by the pandemic. I had seven major events canceled in 2020. Um, so that was a disappointment. And I think my biggest disappointment is I didn't have a chance to meet a lot of readers and a lot of other authors. Normally that would have been, I think, a big part of my experience in my debut year. Um, but, you know, people ask, hey, how did you hit the New York Times list? And I would say there's three reasons. One is HarperCollins really backed the book. The second is Barnes & Noble picked it up as a young adult book club pick for the month of February. So in that month, people around the country are reading the book and, and actually answering questions that Barnes & Noble had put together, like book club type questions. And, and the third is the Asian American community really came out for the book. And I was fortunate that coming out in January, I did have about a month and a half, two months um, to, to be on tour. And I, I ended up touring around the world, uh, around the country. And I was supposed to go to the UK, but that was, that was shut down because of COVID. And then eventually did go to Taiwan, which was uh, amazing in October to research book two. So um, definitely there was a lot of conversations around things like what I shared about, you know, independent bookstores. How do we encourage um, Asian Americans to plug into independent bookstore world? Because, you know, they, frankly, independent bookstores are amazing. They do put books directly into the hands of readers um, on a very personal basis in a way that, you know, I don't think algorithms on Amazon can accomplish. So a lot of that type of work and thinking went on. So let, let's talk about your life since the first book. Safe to say that the world of possibilities changed for you, obviously, having the benefit of being a household name and having an extremely successful book opens a lot of doors. How have you leveraged that opportunity and, and privilege to be able to share some of the stories that you wanted to share more? Obviously, there is a second book, and that's why we're, you know, we're, we're talking about today. But what are some of the other projects that you are able to now work on that you feel passionate about because of the success of uh, Love Boat Taipei? So I think the biggest shift for me has been moving more into Hollywood. So as you know, um, Ace Entertainment optioned book one, Love Boat Taipei. Um, and it's been so much fun working with the team to bring the book from the, you know, from the page to the screen. And you know, we've casted or in Taipei filming now and that journey has been incredibly, it's just been mind boggling. I know I, I describe it as like, for me personally, experiencing the multiverse, because I see my characters and my story <laughs> iterated over and over first, like in different versions of the screenplay and different drafts with, you know, with the pen being held by someone else. And now, you know, with the casting of the characters, being able to see their faces um, representing the characters that I made up in my own head 
um, and then, you know, being able to see them on the screen. So that has been incredible. And through that, I ended up getting, you know, th- just through the process of Love Boat Taipei getting acquired in Hollywood, I ended up meeting so many producers, um, many directors, a lot of actors, and just incredible. And I continue to do that now, just meeting so many talent, um, so much talent. So I was trying to decide, like, how do I um, share this? Like, how do I share all this, this wealth of, um, of, I guess, for lack of better word, of eyes, of attention, right? And so I started to take out my critique partner's work because I would, I would get questions from producers, well, what else do you have besides Love Boat Taipei? And at the time, I didn't have any. I do have more coming now. But um, so I I am working now with one of my critique partners, Stacey Lee, who I mentioned. She wrote a novel, Luck of the Titanic, about the eight Chinese who were on the Titanic. And we are trying to figure out how do we make this into a TV series. Um, so it's I feel like it's one of the big untold stories in the Asian-American world. Uh, James Cameron actually created a documentary or was an executive producer for a documentary that just came out in May. Um, and then I have, I ended up signing with some film managers in Hollywood. And so I'm working with them now on a number of original scripts. I've got an Asian American heist. Um, that's going to be a feature film length script. Um, I have a TV series pilot, uh, about a therapist in Silicon Valley, an Asian American therapist actually, who's kind of mentoring, um, executives that are struggling, going through this power struggle in the Valley, which, you know, I, I know very well seeing up close. Is, is that, that's not fiction, right? <laughs> that, that's, uh... that's like, yeah, it's autobiographical. <laughs> no, just kidding. It's uh, it's all fictionalized. Everything's fictionalized. Any resemblance to real persons is purely coincidental. <laughs> um, and then I have a number of novel projects in the works. So um, I have a third novel coming out with HarperCollins. It's called The Fidget Booth. It's a graphic novel um, about an Asian American family that's struggling with intergenerational ADHD. And so for me, it's an opportunity to think about how these, these other differences, um, cognitive differences, neurodiversity, they sometimes got lost in the shuffle because we were so focused on just like learning how to survive as immigrants, right? And, you know, I have, I have a story in there where the grandparents have undiagnosed ADHD and part of their problems, like the dissonance they experience in the world is actually the ADHD, not actually the immigrant experience. Um, but yet, you know, we didn't, that's not something we understood until later. So I'm excited about exploring those intersectionalities. And, you know, and for that one, we're, you know, working with a, um, an artist to kind of bring, bring the story to life on a page in a different way. So I'm enjoying that medium. And I have other novels that are in the works that, um, I'm excited to share. So it's, it definitely opened up a lot of opportunities, give me a platform to share more stories. Um, and, and actually there's a, a short story that just came out with Macmillan on January 4th. Um, it's in this anthology called serendipity, uh, called the idiom algorithm. And it's about a Chinese American teenager in Silicon Valley who is dating a parachute girl from, from Shanghai and kind of all the things that go awry there. Awesome. It is really inspiring and refreshing to hear you get so excited about the things that you now you get to do without asking anybody for permission and, and knowing that because of the things that you're doing and the doors that you're opening, it'll be just a little bit easier on the next particularly Asian American woman who can live outside the bounds of expectations and societal norms and make a living and a pretty good one working on the things that you love and you're passionate about. And telling just our stories and, you know, and, and normalizing that, you know, something that you and I probably didn't have when we were growing up when we did, because, you know, the world was a little bit different. I, I want to ask you, you went through this entire transformation as, as a parent of, of two tiny people. I would love for one day to talk about all this stuff with them as well. But how did the way that they see you, perhaps, because mom was a lawyer when they were younger 
and, and now she gets to work on things that they can relate to and obviously, you know, a book they can read and a movie they can go see. And what, what are some of the conversations that you've had with them? And are, are there things that you're most proud of when it comes to being able to uh, create a different world for them? I think the biggest thing I'm, I'm hoping that I've left with them is just is the resilience, right? And they, they did see me working for those 12 years on many stories um, and seeing my disappointment and those stories not getting through the gate. Um, I, you know, now my kids are a bit older. And so we we really enjoy time around the dinner table, where, which I think of as like a little mini incubator. I'm, we're constantly floating ideas by each other. My kids are both programmers, are both creative. One is a musician, one is a writer. Um, and then my husband's at Google. And so he's always thinking about these like privacy and security issues. Um, so we have fun just kind of discussing these, these topics at the table. So with multiple novels, my kids actually were my beta readers. They read the whole thing, you know, 300, 400 pages of not, not the most polished work. Um, and they would give input. So with Love with Taipei, it's been really fun for them to just see it go from concept to where it is now. So yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled for them. I think when I was going through the process, there were definitely days when I'm like, am I being a bad example to my kids, right? I'm like spending a lot of time on this stuff that I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. Um, but I think they understand, or they understand and understood then that it was a passion for me and it was important. And they understand like kind of what my hopes are and opening up the world more and just helping people come to a deeper understanding of all of us as humans. I think it's really fascinating that, you know, people on the surface will see you as, oh, her first book did so well. How easy, right? And she wrote about a, a version of some uh, an experience she's very familiar with. And it's, you know, people may see that. Well, obviously, you know, it's like that that infographic that we see with just the tip of the iceberg and then you don't see the 99% that's below the surface. You know, you talk about resi resiliency a lot and it is never giving up and doing things until it works, I think is 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 an extremely uh, great skill to have and, and a trait that is uh, highly ad admirable. But in those times, and, and you've, you've touched on this with a little bit before of, about your critique circle and, and the friends that have kept you going, but what are some lessons that you learned in knowing when to quit, when to pivot, when to pursue? Because 12 years is a long time. Obviously, this wasn't the only thing you were doing. You had a job and you were doing amazing other things in your life. But you know, in, in terms of, you know, helping people find their passions or perhaps, you know, pivoting away or, or something like that, what are lessons that you can share from your experience of having uh, become successful with the thing that you wanted to be successful with? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's one of those things um, you sometimes have to answer it in retrospect because you don't really know when you're in the moment. I can think you, I think in every moment, every time you're making a decision, you have to make it the best one you can with the information that you have. Let me go back to actually a story from my high school days. And maybe, and this is a story that I only recently became comfortable talking about. And so I actually really appreciate this forum and a chance to share it here. Um, but I, I so I, I grew up loving stories. I was a bookworm. I read books all the time. But I, I also was in a school that um, had an incredible theater program, um, the head of SeaWorld Entertainment. So we had actually, we actually had a SeaWorld of Ohio um, close by. So the head of SeaWorld Entertainment ran our arts program. And so we put on these amazing theater productions. And as a middle school, I would go to the high school and I would be in love with these costumes and the story worlds that they created and brought to life. And I wanted to be a part of it. So, but as a ninth grader, you usually can't get cast. Um, you know, you expect to wait, bide your time until you're older. And um, the winter of my ninth grade year, I was I auditioned for what were called one acts, which were student led um, single act plays. Um, and I was cast as the seventh actor in a play called Four Little Words. So I showed up 
really excited to be there. And what I found was the story was actually about a director trying to cast for a role that was just four little words, like your taxi is here, sir. And he couldn't get any of the actors, actresses to shut up and do what they were told. They would just embellish their lines and use, you know, take up all the airtime. And then finally he gets to me. I'm just sitting there quietly and I stand up and I don't speak English. And I don't actually even speak a real language. I have to speak these made up words. And it turned out, like, I was so excited to get this role and it turned out to be a racist role. And I have actually heard other people on your podcast talk about similar experiences with the acting world. So um, I, you know, at the time I didn't understand why I was so upset. Um, it was like a lot of internalized angst. I did not tell my parents that I was in this performance. I would, they knew I was staying late after school to practice, but I never breathed a word of it to them. And there was a day I was absent and I came back the next day and some, one of the other, I think the sixth actress said to me, you know, when the director played your role yesterday, he was hilarious. Why can't you be funny? And it was only like when I was writing about this, um, that my critique partner said this because he was probably, it was probably a racist portrayal of this role. Right. And, and so I kind of look at that story now only with the wisdom of many, many years later and a much more distance and like realizing, wow, that was really bad. Um, and I just didn't have the voice to speak out. I didn't have the words to know why it was so problematic. And then my, one of my good friends who saw my performance came up afterwards, gave me a big hug, congratulations. And then two years later, when we were at Harvard together, um, I said, you know, I felt really horrible playing that role. And he said, I was so angry when I saw you on stage. And we didn't, you know, again, we didn't talk about it. So I guess I use that as an example. Like, I don't know, did I, I didn't quit, right? And, and I, when I shared the story with my producers, they said, and now your book is being made into a movie. I don't know if we can know when to stop, right? We just, we just keep going and we don't know how things will play out. But because I had that experience, um, I appreciate so much more what I have now. And I also understand how hard it is still. First, thank you for sharing that story. I, I know it's not easy to relive difficult moments. And when you're young, not only as, as teenagers, we're just trying to fit in in general, but we have this added layer of race. And so how many times have we let old white men make racist jokes in boardrooms and classrooms and laugh or especially, and I'll speak to the men in the audience when, you know, you're with a bunch of dudes and you're the only non-white person, you're expected to laugh. And if you object, then you become the soft one, the sensitive one, and you get ridiculed even more. And so we're, we're trained just to suck it up and eat it only to realize that you're silently giving them permission to do it again because you complied. And, and so those experiences, particularly if you grew up in parts of the country or the world where you weren't the majority, really does shape. And like you, I, I think it's to, to fully understand what happened and what it meant takes a long time. What, what I am optimistic about and hopeful for is people like you, and we often talk about entertainment and media as the people that we see in terms of the actors and the characters. But we also know that the actual decision makers are the authors, the directors, the writers, the producers that get to decide what actually ends up on screen that impacts the way that so many people see us. And so, yes, it's taken us decades and hopefully we're not going to have to take so much more time for us to fully get to a place where things like that can't happen because they're not allowed to happen. And if they do, they get called out immediately. And, and that's, I think, you know, the evolution of what our generation was able to do to go from 
Yeah, because I think, you know, if, if you talk to our parents, they almost expected the racism because they saw themselves as guests of this country. And so when things happen, they're like, what else did we expect? We're foreigners here. And, and now here we are, have the audacity to believe we should be treated equally. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what amazing inspiration can we model for our kids, uh, not only to expect that, but then to stand up as your parents did for the other school, other uh, students in your school, advocate for them and say, hey, I, might, I may not be the identity that you identify with, but I'm going to make sure that you get treated the same way. Because we, those of us who are more privileged than some of our other peers, like that's our obligation as well. And so, I mean, I, I think just everything about your story, Abigail, is not just the work that you've done, actually, but the inspiration that you provide to us through just being you and being able to leverage the platform and the successes that you've had to just work on so many things. I, I think it will impact uh, particularly young Asian women to say, hey, if Abigail can do it and she looks like me um, <laughs> and, you know, her, her stories feature characters like me that aren't stereotype tropes, that aren't even positive affirmations of stereotypes that sometimes harm us all. I'm so grateful that the work that you're doing is not just being recognized by those in the community who feel seen and heard, but by, you know, super traditional, I don't know, like the New York Times and You've been featured on just about every media outlet ever uh, for your work. And you are the, the voice and the host of uh, the Intel's AI podcast and being invited to speak globally, not just about your book, but about your perspective on the world, because you have this unique blend of all your uh, combined experiences. And still, you're so early in your storytelling journey to be able to spend the next decades shaping the way that we uh, not only see ourselves, but also the, the way that we story tell. So thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for creating a, a better and more open world for my kids, uh, particularly my daughter, who she can't read yet. Um, but uh, <laughs> when she can, I'll be make sure we'll make sure that she reads your stories and watches your movies. As, as we wrap up the show, Abigail, um, we call this show The Years of Americans. The inspiration for the show really is an open letter to the community to share our, our thoughts, our perspectives, our secrets, anything that we want to help us, each other, celebrate, support, and inspire the work that we do. And so would love for you to help us close out the show and share with the audience anything that's on your mind uh, by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. I think I would quote from book one, which, you know, we, we talk a lot about, um, the identity journey, but, you know, at the end of the journey ever realizes that we are powerful. And then I'd say, dear Asian Americans, we are powerful. We have such a rich heritage. Our ability to see things from multiple angles because we come from different cultures is so powerful. And I think we're going to, we are, we are leveraging that in all of our respective walks of life. And I'm excited for what we're going to be doing together and what we are already doing together. Thank you. Again, you're listening to this Folks, in January, we're recording this early November. We just elected the first Asian American woman to, I say we, I didn't vote, but the city of Boston did <laughs> in, in Michelle Wu, where so many historic things are happening. Um, we're, we're coming off such great in, in 2021, again, as challenging as it has been, at least on the media front of people just normalizing that it's okay to go watch an Asian superhero, that it's okay to go watch just a movie that happens to feature Asian American folks where we're not stereotypes or we're not playing in character, that we can read books, both 
memoirs, both nonfiction, but also fiction, and, and especially books for our young people uh, that feature characters that look like us, written by us, which we didn't have as much of. And so super excited uh, for what's to come with Love Boat Reunion. All the best. I know there's a lot of things that you want to share, but you can't. And so as, as we sign off and say, see you soon again, really excited for what 2022 will bring for you and all other Asian American creators out there. Read, pay attention to, but also just observe what Abigail has done in her career, having the patience and the diligence and the tenacity to work through the things. Because if you told her parents back in West Virginia that she'd one day make movies and write books that are household names with characters, not who only look like us, but it's literally our story, they wouldn't believe you either. So um, <laughs> continue dreaming, Abigail. Thank you so much for, for making time. To Lisa and to everybody at, at Metro behind the scenes for making this amazing interview uh, happen. Thank you. It takes a village, I know, to make these amazing uh, things happen and for these works to get out there. So thank you to the team. And uh, most importantly, Abigail, thank you. And best of luck uh, with Love Boat Reunion and all of your other amazing projects. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you for having me. It's always great to talk with you. Thank you so much to Abigail for making time for this conversation and to the team at HarperCollins and to the amazing team uh, behind Abigail's uh, launch, uh, Lisa, and everybody else at Metro Public Relations. Thank you for setting this up. Uh, and again, if you enjoy this conversation uh, between me and Abigail, uh, please go buy her book, gift it, listen to it, download it on audiobook, uh, go to the library, ask for it at your bookstore. Um, let's make sure that we do our part to help each other and help Asian American creators, writers, authors, uh, get more of our publications and work out there. So uh, check her out at abigailhingwen.com. The book is called Love Boat Reunion. If you need to know what happened before this book that came out, uh, go check out Love Boat Taipei. And thanks again to everybody who has listened, tuned in, and are joining us. Uh, next week is going to be uh, the new year that some of us celebrate across the Asian American and Asian communities. It's Lunar New Year next year, uh, welcoming the year of the tiger. So we'll be back with another amazing and fun episode then. Thank you for tuning in. Continue to stay healthy and safe as we uh, battle, still battle um, COVID and more. Wishing you health, happiness, and safety. As always, this has been your host, Jerry Wan, and I'll see you next time here on Dear Asian Americans.